What do you get when the audacious and the therapist collide? A crash course in unpolished therapy. Rachel Silvercone and Dr. Boca aren't afraid to spin out of control, tackling all the tough talk. Their weekly sesh meets at the corner of Audacity and Advice, where their wheels and yours get turned upside down. Hi, everyone. Happy Wednesday. It is Rachel Silver Cohen and Dr. Boca. It's another episode of Unpolished Therapy. We are ditching the couch. We are grabbing the mics. We are breaking down all the unpolished wreckage on the corner of audacity and advice. Good morning, Dr. Boca. How are we? I'm doing great. Honestly, I can't even believe it's the middle of October already. Things are just flying by and I'm enjoying the moment as it's happening. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Yes, it is October. In a perfect world, we would slow life down. But as we know, life just is continuing to progress. So we have to take it by the balls, I guess, if you will, or boobs, I should say, because it is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. And we always love our euphemisms around love here, it. right? So let's love grab it. it by the boobs. And today, I have to tell you, like, I kind of just want to jump right in because it is October. It's Breast Cancer Awareness Month. It, it's so important to be aware of our bodies and our beings and our boobs. And I have the privilege. I know we've talked off air about my dear friend, Stephanie, but today I actually have her. She's agreed to speak with us today about her story. Stephanie is a really special friend of mine, one of my nearest and dearest, who is an absolute breast cancer warrior. She is a survivor. She is an advocate for awareness. She, in my opinion, is truly a real-life superhero. And she knows all of this. I basically tell her this every day. But she has defied the odds of breast cancer. And I've asked her to come on and chat with us today. She's also the founder of Think Pink Rocks, which is a nonprofit organization whose mission is to raise awareness about the early detection of and genetic testing for breast cancer. Think Pink Rocks provides funding for screening, treatment, and research. And I can't wait to have her pop on and share her story. And we can kind of dig in a little bit more to her charity. But without further ado, my special, special dear friend and survivor, my healthy, healthy friend, Stephanie Robin, welcome to Unpolished Therapy. Thanks for being here this morning with us. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited. Thank you for the opportunity to share my story. I'm so excited and I'm honored because I've been hearing about you for all this time. And, you know, I do know a couple of survivors. I also know, unfortunately, I had a dear friend who didn't survive breast cancer. And that's one of the things that I'm always just intrigued by for me. I want to hear your story. I love the fact that you started the Think Pink Rocks and I want to hear all about it. I've sat in that position of wondering what it would be like to receive that information. And so even if we don't start right now with that question, that is such a, a big question for me. And I and how do you process that kind of information? And what is that whole journey like? Because I do work with people who get diagnoses and always imagine myself in their shoes. And what would I do? You know, like what would Jesus do apparently? Like WWJD, what would I do in that situation? So I want to at least put that out there right now as something we can come back to if we if you want to start someplace else and tell your story. But that is an important piece for me. Okay, for sure. We'll definitely get to that. Great. Well, let's start here though, in the sense, and I kind of said it in the introduction, but 
This is not Unsolved Mysteries. It's not Dateline. I want the listeners to know that this is such a success story. I'm so happy that Stephanie's here with us now. And the jig is up in terms of like the question mark of her health. You are healthy. You are strong. Knock on wood. We are so happy about that. Um, So that's sort of like the punchline. But let's go back to like the non-joke about this whole thing. And I guess, Lori, we'll start with what you just said. Steph, will you share with us the story? How did you discover the lump in your breast initially? So... When I was 35 years old, I went for my first sonogram when I was 35 years old. My mother, who had had breast cancer three times and didn't tell us, a big family secret, she thought it was smart for me to start screening. She had dense breasts, as did I. So I had my first screening at 35 and everything was fine. Less than a year later, I was playing with my son on the couch. He was four at the time and he kicked me in my left breast and it hurt. The next thing I knew when I was touching my breast, I felt a lump Mm. and I completely thought that he kicked me and I had a black and blue mark. Sure. I went for a sonogram after that, and they said to me, it was most likely a hematoma, which is a black and blue mark. And for some reason, I don't know, the greater gods said to me, you know, most likely a hematoma, like what kind of diagnosis is that? What's like the other part? Right. And I don't recall who sent me to a breast surgeon for further discovery, But they did send me to a breast surgeon and he did a fine needle biopsy. And I spent the entire time reminding him that my son kicked me so that if he saw funky looking cells or anything, they were probably just bruised cells and, you know, there's nothing Mm -hmm. else going on. I really don't know what made me think to follow further, but it was just my instinct. Stephanie, let me interrupt for a minute. At this point of the journey, which is very new, obviously, piece about your mom having breast cancer, were you aware of this at this point? No. No. Wow. Wow. All right. I mean, we're definitely getting back to that. I'm... Um, Yeah. (laughs) I wish our listeners could see as the person and as well as the psychologist in me is sitting there going, can we just dissect that piece alone, let alone all this other stuff? We might have to have a whole other podcast with you, Stephanie, but continue. Family secrets part Mm. two. Wow. So I was trying to make sure that he was going to tell the radiologist that it was just a bruise and, you know, don't look further. And I got a call back saying there is evidence of malignant cells. And I recall saying to him, is this serious? Should I be writing this down? And he said, I'd like you to come in for a core biopsy, which is a larger needle and they take more tissue. And sure enough, he confirmed there were malignant cells. That was about two months after I was kicked. And that was the beginning of my life with breast cancer. So I'm listening to this and and the anxiety in me is already getting triggered. What was that? You know, a lot of times we respond to things like that in shock. We don't actually, I mean, I'm giving you kudos for even saying, should I write this down? Because I don't even know if I would have had my wherewithal to grab a pen and piece of paper and ask that kind of question. 
But it sounds like you were struggling even before that with accepting even the possibility that it could be that because we had justification that your son kicked your boob. So do you remember at all what that moment was like or even the next couple of weeks as you were kind of coming out of what I would assume I would go into denial and it in shock and then kind of come to a place of, oh shit, and then what the fuck? And then, you know, the, am I going to survive this? What does this mean? What about my children? What about my spouse? Like, oh my God, I have to get my affairs in order. Can I beat this? And then to this place of either I choose this path with the hope of survival, I, I give up. So I'm projecting all of this as my own stuff, but I would love if you could share with our listeners and with us what that process felt like and what you went through. So the initial phone call when he said there's evidence of malignant cells, that was complete shock for me. Definitely like I saw a deer in headlights. I remember where I was standing. I remember saying to him, you know, is this for real? Should I be writing this down? I think I was still in denial. I still felt like there's no way, you know, I'm 36 years old. And that's where my son kicked me. What are the odds, you know? Dev, let's back up for the listeners too. Just so your son was four years old. You also had a younger daughter as well, correct? How old was your daughter? Two. Two. So Mm -hmm. to the listeners, Stephanie had a two-year-old daughter, a four-year-old son. She was under 40 years old, 36 years old. Her son had kicked her while they were playing just a motherly play with her toddler son. Fast forward, she's now getting a phone call from a doctor saying that there's evidence of malignant cells. So now what, Stephanie? Because we know that there's a wide range of degrees of breast cancer stages. So talk us through that in terms of the actual diagnosis. So a lot of it's blurry to me in terms of the actual order. The initial diagnosis, which was stage two, the cancer metastasized to my lymph nodes under Mm -hmm. my left arm. What I learned was once the cancer cells have gotten to your lymph nodes, they're now traveling through your blood system. So it's very common that they would leave the original organ, which was my breast, and travel to another organ. I didn't really know or understand all of that. I can't recall how my mother told us that she had had breast cancer three times. But it led us to Dr. Louise Morell, who was an oncologist turned genetic counselor at the time. And she informed us that there was such thing called this BRCA gene, the breast cancer gene for breast and ovarian cancer. And at that time, I guess she wanted my family history. And that's when my mom's history came out. The BRCA gene is very prevalent in Ashkenazi Jews. It's common or likely that you will have the gene if somebody in your family has already had it. It can be passed down. Just to note for your listeners, men and women can be carriers of the BRCA gene. Men can get breast cancer. So it's not just a female gene. Dr. Morell at that time probably recommended my doctors. She said, because of my young age, And the degree of my cancer being found in my lymph nodes as well, she recommended I get a double mastectomy. Reconstruction was an option. That was up to me. And a full hysterectomy. 
because the BRCA gene is also for ovarian cancer. For the listeners, we're on Zoom right now, and I know that Dr. Boca is like chomping at the bit, but I'm just going to say what I know she's asking because I'm hogging the microphone right now. Can we just please back up to when you had the conversation with your mom? Hey, mom, I just got a phone call. There's signs and evidence of malignancy in the cells in my breast, to which then your mom, what? Like, are you kidding me? I mean, we're on Polish and I love you and I actually adore your mom. So I'm saying this out loud. Like, what just happens here? Can we please just talk about that? Like, when was your mom like, well, and by the way, that is a family, unpolished as unpolished as it gets. So can we just sort of talk about that for a minute? Thank you, Rachel. <laughs> I was dying um, there. I have to tell you, I don't know if my memory has blocked it. I really can't recall. I'm going to have to call her after this. Okay. Um, I really can't recall at what time she said, hey, by the way, we have a history of breast cancer. It might have been somewhere in between the doctors recommending me to go see Dr. Morrell. But not just we have a history of breast cancer in our family. Three times. I I am a survivor. I had breast cancer. I meaning your mother, not once, not twice, but thrice. (laughs) Three unpolished times here. And Stephanie, you're such a loving, wonderful human being, which is one of the reasons that I'm so drawn to you. But like, at what point do you not look at your mom and and say like, mom, what? Like, are you fucking kidding me? I mean, it's remarkable. And and Dr. Broca, maybe you want to speak to the fact of like blocking it down or completely not having any memory of this. Right. I mean, look, there's so much here and I don't know your mom. And I believe that all parents, and I've said this on the podcast before, we do the best that we can with what we have in that moment, right? And so I am sure that your mother did this from a protective, caring place, not to stress out the kids and the family and not bring on, you know, the concept of potential death and seeing her that way and treatment and all of that. So I appreciate deeply that. But the recipient of the secret, right? Not the holder of the secret, although that is burdensome, the receiver of the lack of information does have a, a a response to it. And now when you're sitting as the patient with no information about that and then don't recall what that is, yeah, you know, we do protect ourselves. It sounds like you have a very close relationship with your mom by evidence by you saying, I'm going to call her after this to find out what happened. But when we go through something as traumatic as a diagnosis of breast cancer and then also find out, oh my God, like, you had it. You never told me. I could have gone when I was 30 for a mammogram or a sonogram. I could have done something preventative. I could have met with the doctor ahead of time and had a choice to find out about this BRCA gene and whether you were a carrier, I was a carrier. I could have been preventative rather than you know the, the pre-viver instead of the survivor, right? So there's probably some emotion in there. And I can appreciate while you're going through this process, you know, we're in a a place of gratitude that like we've survived this, we're in a good place. And I recognize that and honor that it's the part of me that as the psychologist that is just identifying and empathize with that probably traumatized individual who had to go through that process, not only with the current devastation of the unknown, but also the unknown of the unknown that you also had to couple on top of that. So I'm bewildered, but understand. 
But at the same time, there's still a process to go through in that. So thank you, Rachel, for bringing it because I was like literally sitting there. I had just a quick question to tag onto this. I assume that when you met with the doctor, the genetic counselor, you both came up positive for the BRCA gene. We didn't actually state that. So, okay, yes, you were both positive for the BRCA gene. And yes, that is treatment protocol usually is the double mastectomy and the hysterectomy in order not to have the cancer going forward. So I assume that's what you did. Yes, that's what I did. I have so many answers for you. Going back to my mom, thank God her cancers were all self-contained. She never had to do chemotherapy. She had to do radiation and she didn't have major surgeries. So I guess, I don't know. I feel like at least my family back in the day, you know, remember when everyone used to whisper like cancer or the C word, you know, it was so hush hush. What really, really kills me is that three different times that she went through this, there was not one physician that told her about the BRCA gene. And that's basically how my charity started. Because like you said, Dr. Boca, had I known that there was a family history, I would have been getting checked earlier. I don't know if I mentioned this. I had a mammogram in October and it was clean. And by the time I had my second mammogram after my son kicked me was about six and a half months later. And there was already a five centimeter tumor. That's how fast Uh my cancer grew. Can I just ask you, Stephanie? um, So the first one was actually a mammogram or was that the sonogram? The first was just the sonogram where they said, you know, it's most likely a hematoma. And then you had a mammogram? Yes. And then you had another mammogram six months later? No. I I had a sonogram when I was 35. Okay just to check the history of dense breasts. My mother told me that she had a history of dense breasts and that's Mm -hmm. why she wanted me to be checked as well. Then I had a mammogram, irrelevant, just for the record. And then six and a half months later. Yeah, it was six and a half months from mammogram to mammogram. I was just confused because you had mentioned the sonogram and was wondering why the sonogram didn't pick up anything, but the mammogram also picked up nothing. And then six months later, found this aggressive growing six millimeters tumor. Wow, that's fast. I was at my gynecologist from the time my son kicked me before surgery. And I had told him, I said, they found a five centimeter tumor, which apparently is quite large. And I didn't tell him which breast or where, and he couldn't find it. Wow. How scary is that? Wow. I think it's important to mention, and we in today's world, in 2022, October 2022, breast cancer and the awareness of such is now such a common household conversation, thank goodness, that we've been able to have now, whether it's media, whether it's people like Stephanie who start foundations because it's so critical that we have the awareness. But I think what's important to see that juxtaposition from years ago, Stephanie, in your mom's case, that it was so hush-hush. Everyone's quiet and whispering and no one talks about anything. And the rate at which these cells and tumors grow is so quick that it is absolutely life and death, which is why we cannot hush-hush. We cannot whisper. We have to talk about it. It needs to be part of our dinner conversation. It needs to be what we're talking about in the car with our children. It needs to be what we're talking about you know, morning, noon, and night. My guess is that that's one of the biggest differences between generations in the past to where mm-hmm. we are now. And I can't say how important it is that these 
screenings and the consistency of that, how important it is. It's a matter of life and death. Yes. Absolutely. And I think you said the the key word is generational. I think that the main reason my mother was so hush-hush was generational. One of my big things with my foundation is know your family history. Mm -hmm. Um, We didn't know about cancer and genetics and that there was this gene. And I beg people to talk to your grandparents and your parents while they're still here, while they're still alive. I think back in the day, so many people died of cancer, but they might not have known that the primary cancer was breast cancer. Mm-hmm. They might have died thinking it was lung cancer, but it could have been breast cancer that metastasized to the lungs. So I think the, the early knowledge and finding out your family history is key. Speaking of lung cancer and metastasized, et cetera, can you continue to share your story now? Because I know you said when you were first diagnosed, it was stage two and it was in your breast, but you say lung cancer and my light bulb in my head goes off and I want our listeners and Dr. Boca to know the rest of your story. So having very limited knowledge about breast cancer, I decided we did have the internet, but everyone told me do not immerse yourself in research Mm -hmm. and all of this. My brother and my husband at the time and my mom were pretty much my researchers. And I didn't really understand the seriousness of the breast cancer being in my lymph nodes. I didn't ever picture it coming back. So my original diagnosis, I had the double mastectomy with reconstruction. I had the full hysterectomy. I went through four months of dose-dense chemotherapy. I was bald. I was sick. I was bedridden. After that, I had the hysterectomy. And then I thought I was okay. I was like, I'm done. I'm going to live. I'm done. About a year later, I had a cough. I don't recall what made me go back to the oncologist. I don't know if it was a routine visit or not, but he didn't like the cough and he wanted me to get a chest x-ray. And again, it's blurry to me, but the next phone call was the breast cancer has metastasized to your lungs, Mm. to your lung, my left lung. No, I'm sorry. It was in both lungs changing my diagnosis from stage two to stage four. What I didn't know back then was there is no stage five. So I was like, you know, completely, if the first diagnosis was scary, the second one was devastating. uh, Yeah. Devastating. So because it was in my lymph nodes, it had the ability to travel. It settled in both of my lungs. I went up to Sloan Kettering in New York. I had what's called lung resection, where they take out the tumors in my lungs. I can't remember if they started me on chemo right away or if they just did the surgery and waited. But I do know in the year to follow, I had three failed chemotherapies. Mm. The tumors in my lungs grew back despite the fact that we were treating it. At that point... One of the big wig doctors in Boca said, you need to get your affairs in order. Mm. There's nothing I can do for you. Steph, when doctors say that to you, I guess for the rest of us listening, we can all say like, oh my God, I can't imagine, or I can't imagine what would be going through my head. But let's talk about it. And I know it's unnerving, but 
this is the crux of it. You're not 40 years old. You thought you survived stage two breast cancer. You had a double mastectomy. You had a full hysterectomy. You thought you were on the mend, right? And now you get this absolutely devastating news. Get your affairs in order. You have two young children, a husband. You have a mother who now is a breast cancer survivor. You have a brother and family and so on and so forth. How do we process this? Like, what does that even mean? And and how do you cope? How do you get up in the morning and move forward with news like this with two little kids at home? I don't really recall. I don't recall the waking up to the news. What I do recall was carrying on that there was no way that I could die. Mm. I have my children to raise. I have baseball tournaments and dance recitals. I want to be at their bar and bat mitzvahs. I don't even recall, again, Dr. Boca, there's probably major therapy for me in the future of trying to figure out why so much of this is blocked. I don't have the emotions. I know that I was hysterical. I like to ask people that were close to me at that time, like what it was like. Mm-hmm. My mom said it, I was just crying and crying and hysterics. I'm not ready to die. I'm not ready to die. But I just, I don't know t- what my recollection is just always saying, screw this. I'm out. There's no way you're not taking me. I sit here and I'm like, gosh, her will to live. You know, that's such a powerful thing that people take for granted. It really, there's so much mindset involved in health and the mind-body connection. And, you know, when we go through trauma, a lot of times we go into fight and flight and freeze different modes of coping with the trauma. And really our mindset and this belief that we're not going to be that victim, we're not going to, you know, succumb to something like this, despite the feelings inside that we are processing, because it does sound like you were emoting, you just don't recall that. Anything that we would recall about falling apart or crying and all of that derails us from where our vision is taking us, which is in in a positive place. And sometimes that's the protective piece of it that we have to kind of break off and go down that path and save the other stuff to cope and process with after the time, you know, when we can actually take that breath that we made it. And in this situation, it really sounds like, you know, Stephanie, you already got a diagnosis. You had already been healthy. Now you got another one that's even more massive and and people are kind of like losing hope. Somebody had to have the hope, but you never can really totally exhale because, you know, five years, 10 years, whatever it is, you don't know. And so there may be that protective place still in you that just says, yes, I made it. I'm here. I'm appreciating every day. I love this. And I'm a fighter. But opening up that, I can never fully, you know, it's like having a child, I'm not comparing it to this, but it's like having a child and saying, I'm never going to be without worry again, right? After that child pops out of you. It's just one of these things like you carry around, even if it's the small piece in the back, like, this could happen again. So I can't go back and uncover some of that stuff because I may need this will again to fight. So there is a protective place. So I don't want to sit here and not empathize with that piece of you that has bottled it up and can't remember because you went through a trauma. This is the epitome of a traumatic event in the course of your lifetime. And by the way, I'm still responsible for two children and want to try to normalize their life as well. So I mean, the amount of respect and just strength and admiration that I have for you and strength that you have is so deeply resonating with it because I do feel what you've accomplished. And I hope you can give yourself that piece of it because many people would have taken that piece, like get your affairs in order and never stepped out of bed again. 
they would have said, well, nobody else can do it. So I'm not going to do it. And my fight is over. So you didn't allow that. And I hope that you recognize that and give yourself that credit because I wish that I will have that if God forbid that time ever came that I would have that fight in me for myself and my family. I so appreciate you saying that because I am one of those people that survivor or not, or, you know, strong or not, I'm very, very hard on myself. Mm. I did, you know, kudos to me. I definitely said, I'm going to fight. When people would say, you're so strong, do you know, you're so strong. I would say, what choice do I have? You know, my kids are two and four, like, what do you want me to do? And doctors would say, well, you could get into bed, get under the covers and never get out again. I just couldn't relate to that. I was like, "There's that's just not the way I was brought up and that's not the way you live. I got very immersed in breast cancer and charities and stuff and wearing pink. And one of my favorite sayings at the time still is pink isn't just a color, it's an attitude. Mm, and love that. I really think, I mean, it sounds crazy, but I think that's what got me through. Like I had an attitude of you're not taking me. I have my kids to raise. And I'm going to win. I don't ever remember really feeling sorry for myself or woe is me. When I look at, when I look back at my whole cancer experience, I, I don't feel like it was me. I look at it like, oh, that poor girl, Stephanie, look how great mm-hmm. she did. I don't realize that I'm the survivor and I'm the fighter. You know, I feel like that was just my only option. I didn't think that there was any other option but to survive and fight. Steph, I want to say that while I'm not a doctor, even though I like to pretend that I am <laughs> a lot of the time and play one on TV or at least on this podcast, I 100% believe that your mental attitude of there is no other option other than to fight, fight, fight and get up every morning and do whatever it takes is why you are still here and why your optimism and the hope that you give others has radiated throughout, certainly locally and throughout the nation relative to Think Pink Rocks. What I'd like to jump back to though is with this hope and the determination coupled with the fact that they told you to pack your bags, but then my understanding is is that you were asked to be part of this clinical trial in New York at Sloan Kettering. And let's talk a little bit about that because your belief and your optimism and your will to live coupled with this clinical trial. Let's talk about that a little bit. So after my first diagnosis, when it metastasized to my lungs, I did a trial at UM Sylvester and it worked for 14 months and then the cancer grew back. Then I had three failed chemotherapies. We tried three different things and nothing worked. At that point, it was like, you know, I might lose the race against time. I can't recall if it was my doctor at UM Sylvester or Dr. Morell who mentioned a PARP inhibitor trial, which has to do with my type of cancer. And then my brother took over completely and researched. He would go into chat rooms and speak with patients. He did, I mean, he definitely was part of saving my life. He did an enormous amount of research and he found the PARP inhibitor trial at Sloan Kettering. I live in Boca. So that was kind of like, how are you going to be on a trial in New York? And at that point, I definitely remember going to Dr. Morell and her saying to me, if you were my child, I would tell you to go. Mm -hmm. 
And that was like a major turning point for me. The parts of the trial that didn't seem realistic were I had to fly to New York every single week for eight weeks. Then I had to go every two weeks. Then I had to go once a month. Then I had Mm. to go every two months. Then every three months. Now I'm every six months. And when I say go, it was for CAT scans. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm beyond fortunate that I, you know, had the ability to fly to New York, you know, for all of those trips. If not for that, I would probably be dead because there was no trial in Florida. My brother found this trial with Dr. Mark Robson at Sloan. And yeah, I think I was the first person on his trial. And it was trial medication at the time. It was just being used for breast cancer. And fast forward, I've been getting CAT scans every six months. I see my doctor every three months. I get new medication every three months. It's 16 pills a day. I'm still on the trial 13 years later, and I am the only one in my trial group that has survived. So this medication is just my miracle drug. Wow. Can we say that again, Stephanie, or or can I repeat that? 13 years later, a zillion pills a day, you were the first person in the trial and you are the only living survivor of this trial. I mean, if we can all just take a moment and take a breath and just marvel in your strength and determination and fortitude and wow. Wow. I I have the chills going up and down And, and Rachel will attest to the fact it takes a lot for me to have that experience. Like I'm like, I can't even, I mean, if I thought it was amazing to talk to you now, it's even more amazing, just everything that you've gone through. So I just want to make take a step back for our listeners to make sure since this is the first time I'm hearing the story also. So basically, you have been monitoring this. You've been out of the actual chemo part and treatment part other than the pills and the follow-up for 13 years. Is that the like- The pills you got, are chemo. Oh, the, the, the pills that you're currently taking are chemo. So you're an yeah. ongoing chemo- regimen that you have to take. Okay. And are you considered in remission? Are you considered that you still have cancer? Like how do they, is there a classification? Does it matter? It does matter. Okay. When you are stage four, I don't believe you can ever use the word remission because the cancer is already in your your body, in your blood system, head to toe. What they call me is NED, no evidence of disease. So when I get back to CAT scan, it says there are no further changes, no evidence of disease. The scary Mm. thing is, is I'm stage four forever. And, Mm. you know, every single scan. That was my next question. Same feeling of, I hope this isn't it. You know, Mm. I truly live my life, you know, three to six months at a time. I sit here and I say, does that change your mindset in terms of what you do each and every day and how you live your life versus when you were sitting there before you even knew you had the first diagnosis? Can you tell our listeners and me, because I'm so fascinated by that, what is that? How has that changed your worldview and the way that you live your life? In the beginning, um, even with the trial, I didn't know or feel that I was going to survive or live. I never made long-term plans ever. I would Mm. never commit to doing something more than a few months away. I had no interest in travel. My travel was just to New York 
from Florida to see the doctors. I couldn't even think of making plans to go, you know, travel and go somewhere because it just, my future was so, I don't know if you want to call it nearsighted or, Mm -hmm. you know, it was, everything was just live for the next three months and then we'll see what happens. Um, Now I definitely, I don't want to say I take for granted that I'm healthy, but I do know that I'm healthy and I feel healthy, but I think in the back of my head or my heart, I still, I'm not comfortable making major plans for the future. Mm. You know, a few months, great. I know people have said, you know, months before, do you want to go away for Christmas vacation? And I'm not afraid that my cancer is going to come back before that and ruin my plans, but there's something in me that fears making plans for the future. Yeah. And I can appreciate that and that the fear of that disappointment and uncertainty and and all that anxiety that comes with that. Can you talk, speak and a little bit about how your children came through all of this and what that experience was like? You know, obviously you're not in their shoes, but you watched it. And then also how it may or may not have changed your relationship with them at this point, because they've got to be like 17, I'm not good at math, but like 17 and 19 or something along those lines, like real people now versus the the two and four-year-old that they were when this all started. Yes. My daughter's 20 and oh. my son is 22. Oh, I'm terrible at I math, got- apparently. <laughs> <laughs> I got but okay. to do all the dance recitals and baseball games. I got to see their bar and bat mitzvahs and their mm. high school graduations. So that's just, I mean... Wow. Incredible. It was, those are, those are accomplishments and milestones I never thought I would see. So in a crazy way, I feel like I did it. I made it, you know, and if I don't get to see the other stuff down the road, so be it. I got through what I really cared about. I raised my children very, very independent. I raised Mm -hmm. them so they would be fine without me. They're both extremely independent to this day. So I accomplished that goal of mine. Interestingly, at two and four, it seems like they don't remember much. I know I had help with my daughter, who was two. I had a nanny who I then hired full time. So she kind of was like my daughter's mother for those couple of years. They don't remember much. They don't remember seeing me bald. They don't remember me being bedridden the weeks of chemo. I know they look at me with such admiration and strength. They definitely think I'm the strongest person they know. I don't know if they really understand the gist of all the chemo and all of the cancer. I don't know how much they really understand, understood. Again, I don't know if they block it out. We do talk about it, but I don't know that they, they, I'm not sure. I know that they think I'm a fabulous, strong survivor. Um, I think they remember when I started Think Pink Rocks, we did Mm -hmm. a bunch of concerts at Meisner Park with Mm -hmm. famous musicians, Akon and Flo Rida and Queen Latifah and a bunch of things. I think that's what they remember. (laughs) You know, they keep saying you should do a concert again. And the concert was to raise awareness so that I had as many people in the audience that I could tell about the BRCA gene and tell them that, you know, while your family's alive, get your family history. That was really the point of it. And I love music and it was kind of like music is a celebration of life. So I think they more remember the fundraisers and 
concerts and luncheons more so than the trauma of it. Stephanie, with respect to your children now being 20 and 22, they're still your family. The bloodline is prevalent. In regard to early detection, what has been their path relative to being tested for the BRCA gene? Again, this is not just for females. Men get breast cancer also. So what has been the ongoing preventative measures for your children? As far as I know, age 25 is what they recommend to get tested for the BRCA gene. It is a subject that nauseates me, and I pray all the time that neither of them have the gene. If I can just interrupt, is the re I didn't know that. Is the reason that they're not tested until 25 because the gene is still developing or it wouldn't be seen ahead of time? Why is 25 and not n- right now? That's a great question. I think. It might have to do with maturity level of dealing with it and Mm. at what part, how far along you are in your life. Like what decisions are you going to make that probably at 20, you don't have, I mean, you're still in college. You don't have the wherewithal to understand. Maybe 25 is a little bit older and you're more prepared for the information. I'm not really sure why 25. That's just the number that sticks in my head. Yeah, I'm not sure. That's a good question. So one of the other things that I just want to make sure we make clear to the listeners is that one of the reasons that the early detection of the BRCA per se is so important is because even if you test positive for BRCA1 or BRCA2, it's not all doom and gloom. It doesn't mean pack your bags and get your affairs in order. There's so much that can be prevented just in the knowledge of knowing. Correct, Stephanie? Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Absolutely. I like to say knowledge is power. Having the information that you do have the BRCA gene does not mean that you are forced to go and get a double mastectomy and a hysterectomy. The information just allows you to be on a better regimen with your doctors I believe you don't get covered for a mammogram until a certain age, whereas if you have the BRCA gene, they will cover you earlier for mammograms and MRIs. What the information of having the BRCA gene basically is an invitation to be screened more frequently. It doesn't mean that you need medication and surgeries. It just means that you will probably be screened every three to six months as opposed to once a year. They might do, instead of just doing sonograms and a mammogram, they would follow up with an MRI. They're more vigilant. Yeah. 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 Much closer screening. So it's definitely not a death sentence. If anything, it's life-saving in a lot of circumstances. So what I'm hearing is you can have the BRCA gene, never develop cancer. If you have the BRCA gene and you know you have the BRCA gene, then they could potentially, because of the services that they provide, catch it much quicker. So in your case, if they would have done a three-month mammogram, if you had known about this, they would have caught it way before it got to five. But also the flip side, and I want to say this to our listeners with knowledge is power, we also have to be aware that you can still get breast cancer even without the BRCA gene. And that's also a a part of this. So you don't sit there and go get your BRCA test, find out you're clear, and then believe you will never get cancer. That's correct. Right, Stephanie? Absolutely. The BRCA gene is just one element of it. I mean, anybody can get breast cancer. Anybody. And And I just wanted to put that out there because we do hear so much about the BRCA gene. 
And then people are like, oh, I don't have it. Thank God, you know, I'm never... And it's not really just this huge sigh of relief. It's now I have to take responsibility and just follow up. Um, And unfortunately, we don't provide the services as easily if we don't have the BRCA gene, but it's still on us to do that. So I just wanted to... Excellent point. I could be saying this incorrectly, but I'm pretty sure that people with the BRCA gene are the minority of breast cancer patients. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. One of the things that Rachel always says is if I'm thinking it or she's thinking it, our audience is probably thinking it. I have had numerous friends, unfortunately, who have had cancer and who have also just been sick in general or who have lost family, whatever the case is. And I sit there trying my best to provide support. And it sounds like you were surrounded, thank God, by you know people. You had your family, your brother doing all the research, your mother being present and, and able. You had the nanny who was taking care of all of the day-to-day. What was helpful for you outside of that that people could have done for you? What did you need during this process? What are those things that somebody can say to you? Because as Rachel and I have talked about, after somebody dies, it's like, what do you say? What do you do? You know, when somebody's going through that process, can you share with all of us like what's helpful? What isn't helpful? What makes us look like assholes and hurts you in that process? And I do appreciate that everybody's different, but some information might be useful to us because I do think everybody feels helpless during this process. Yeah, sure. No, that's a great question. My memory is, honestly, I wanted to be left alone. Mm -hmm. I remember people calling, leaving messages on my answering machine back in the day, um, and just never answering the phone. I just wanted to be left alone in my cocoon to deal with it on my own. I remember people delivered dinners, Mm -hmm. so I guess that I didn't have to cook for my family, and that was really helpful. But I do remember people delivering the dinners and me not wanting to go and answer the door and have to talk. So I think... For me, it was, you know, leave me be, do whatever you want to do that seems helpful to my family. But I I just remember I wanted to be left alone. Um, I recall my college roommates sent a big carton of stuff for my kids. Mm. I thought that was a fabulous idea. You know, just gifts for the kids, nothing to do with me. I think it's a really tough gray area of how the patient Mm -hmm. wants to be treated. Yeah. And process everything. My guess is it's very individual. Um, Because I've been around so long, thank God, I do speak to a lot of people going through breast cancer. I have a lot of contacts in the breast cancer world in Boca or all over, I should say. And people do give out my number. They say that, you know, I have such a good attitude. I could hopefully help somebody else going through it. And it seems that that really helps a lot of people speaking to me and hearing mm-hmm. someone has been there, done that, and has a good attitude. I'm kind of with you that I don't really know what yeah. you do for someone in that situation. It, it, it's I- really... There's nothing anyone could really do. But you might have given me the best thing. I can pimp you out to talk to people that are going through it. And that That, might be the best gift I could give somebody. You know what? I think that is the best gift you can give someone. Find someone who's already been there, done that with a good attitude and hook them up. 
Yeah. That would be my advice. That's and great. I just want to say, if I can jump in as someone who's sort of been watching Stephanie thrive from the sidelines all these years, there are so many times, Steph, and I don't even know that you're aware of it, but you and I will talk on the phone and you'll say, oh, I just had a conversation with someone because my number was given to a new individual who has recently been diagnosed. And you have now spent the entire morning on the phone with that individual. Mm -hmm. And again, when you're going through it, you're probably unaware. But from my vantage point, how you are so selfless with your time and that it really has become this innate passion of yours to help someone else because you have gone through it. And while those of us on the sidelines wish we had something we could do or we want to do, we want to check it off the list. We want to make a donation. We want, if we ourselves haven't gone through it, I can imagine from the other person's vantage point, it doesn't translate nearly as deeply as someone like yourself. So I, Mm -hmm. my hat does go off to you because I see you light up in a way you know you're giving back and it's for all the right reasons. And I, I hope you'll take a moment to acknowledge yourself for that and you know, pat yourself on the back for a job well done coming from a place of love and obviously your own personal experience. But I, I do think that it, it's beautiful and, and maybe that is the best gift you can give to share your story and to give other people hope. With that being said, Think Pink Rocks. Let's talk about that because your charity, to the listeners out there, again, Think Pink Rocks is a charity that Stephanie started years ago. It's a nonprofit organization. The mission, of course, is to raise awareness about early detection and genetic testing for breast cancer. It provides funding for the screening the treatment and the research for breast cancer all through this medium, initially, of course, Steph, with music and how music really does feed your soul and how you've been able to give that back to the community. So you want to touch on that just uh, briefly before we wrap it up? Sure. I remember some doctors saying, you're either going to jump into the breast cancer world or you're going to want nothing to do with it and you're going to run so far. So I remember that in the beginning. And I remember feeling like I'm jumping in, you know, I'm not running anywhere. I remember there was a newscaster, Kristen Hoke. Unfortunately, she's passed. She had breast cancer and she was sharing her story on the news. And back then, nobody was talking about breast cancer. Nobody was sharing their story. Nobody heard of the BRCA gene. I really feel like most people haven't heard about the BRCA gene until I think it was Angelina Jolie. That, that started talking about it, which was many, many years after I was diagnosed. So many years went by with, you know, me saying, oh, I have the BRCA gene and people saying, what's that? What's that? What's that? Mm. Including doctors. There were doctors that didn't wow. hear, heard about. Yeah, it was, wow. it, it's insane how quiet it was. And I felt with, with Kristen Hope telling her story, I felt like I wanted to share my story. I wanted her to share her story. And we started with a small luncheon at uh, B'nai Israel. And at the time, we called the charity Think Pink. Mm. And we did that as a luncheon. And we raised a significant amount of money and got the word about the BRCA gene and talking to your relatives about your family history. I think the year after that, we did another luncheon. And then... I think the ultimate goal was how can I tell my story 
share my story, share the awareness of the BRCA gene to so many people. And one of the other people on my committee at the time was like, let's do a concert. And, you know, we loved music and she encouraged the whole concert thing. The goal was to be able to tell thousands of people, not just, you know, a hundred people at a luncheon to tell thousands of people. And we were hoping, you know, young people too would show up because it's the young people that need to talk to their families mm-hmm. sure. and get their family history. And one of the people reached out to, I guess, a producer and he wanted to spotlight some of his new entertain his new people his new his new musicians and I don't know we just made a deal and we had he he brought in you know the big wigs that I mentioned and some of the smaller artists and it just it started there and just turned into this huge huge we named it Think Pink Rocks after the music and we did a few concerts at Meisner Park. We raised a lot of money, but more than the money, we raised the awareness mm-hmm. of the mm-hmm. Jack gene and my story. It's amazing. And I've been, you know, in this community forever. And I remember when you guys started this, obviously not knowing you or your story. And I remember how it grew from B'nai Israel to Meisner and the concerts and some of the other people involved in it and always had so much ad- admiration. Again, not knowing necessarily you and your energy and your your spirit about it. Um, and it's just been such a great success. And I do think that you've accomplished what your mission was, which was really to let people know. And the fact that we're sitting on this Zoom recording thing, whatever, airing, I don't know the lingo. And we are amazed that people don't know the BRCA gene, you know, 10 years ago or 13 years ago is like, mind-blowing because it's so much part of our vernacular now and our understanding now. So clearly, you, along with other people who have gone through this, really have accomplished that mission to educate and inform and deal with prevention. And even the idea of having a provider now, right, is so remarkable because obviously you can't know to do those things if you didn't know about all of this that leads up to it and the genetic component of it. So kudos to all of you. I mean, never should we have to go through something like this to get to that point. But that is how life works is somebody usually has to experience something in order for something good to come from it. And like we've talked about, you could have easily gotten back into bed and thrown the covers over your head and left it to somebody else to deal with and you didn't. And it is remarkable. And as a person, like I said, in the community, I can recognize that independent of knowing you and say, what an amazing accomplishment. And now I can say it to the person who founded it, like what an amazing accomplishment. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Steph, we love you. I'm always in awe every time I'm with you, which is often. So I (laughs) I walk around in awe of Stephanie's aura and her good health and her excellent attitude and how everything that she does now is sparked by this drive and will and waking up every morning and truly living life to its fullest. I, it, it's it's not often I say this about many people, but about you, I often say how blessed I am to be your friend and to be in your company and um, in your good, healthy graces. And I, I, I can't say thank you enough. To the listeners out there, if we've conveyed nothing, I hope we have conveyed that the BRCA1 and BRCA2 are the first two genes found to be associated with the inherited forms of breast cancer 
and ovarian cancer, people with these mutations in either the BRCA1 or 2 gene, you have a much higher risk to develop breast and ovarian cancer than those without the mutation. It is so important that you take seriously early detection. You have your mammograms, your sonograms, your ultrasounds. You don't leave until you know that you've been screened properly, that you reach out to people if you have questions, people like Stephanie and Think Pink Rocks. We're hoping that this conversation we've had today has enlightened you, has inspired you, has put a a spark under your ass and your boobs to, to get checked. Think Pink Rocks. Uh, .org is Stephanie's foundation. All of the donations to Think Pink Rocks will benefit the cancer research at Memorial Sloan Kettering, the Breast Oncology Center at the University of Michigan's Rogel Cancer Center, and of course, locally here, Boca Raton Regional Hospital, the Lynn's Women's Health and Wellness Institute, Dr. Mark Robeson at Sloan Kettering in New York, and of course, the fantastic lifesaver, Dr. Louise Morrell here locally. We always say, Steph, you and I, that she is your angel and she saved your life. And I think our conversation today, you're um, saving lives of many. And in addition to all of these pre-screening options, again, I think your intuition, of course, Stephanie, the fact that your intuition led you to keep pushing and pushing and pushing to say, wait a minute, this just doesn't seem accurate. So your own intuition, self-check, which I'm the first one to say, I don't do that normally as often as we should, but self-check your own intuition, going for your annual appointments and just making sure that we're doing everything in our power to keep ourselves healthy. Stephanie, if anyone wants to reach you directly, how can they, if they have questions, if they want to continue the conversation, if they themselves are struggling, whether it's with a family member or personally, can they reach you? Can we link your information on the bottom of our podcast? Absolutely. They could send me an email through thinkpinkrocks.org and I will absolutely get back to them. Fantastic. And and I would be happy to share my number and speak to anybody individually. That's amazing. I can't say thank you enough. Again, pink is not just a color. It is an attitude. Stephanie, you are a shining light and I adore you. And on behalf of Dr. Boca and myself, I cannot say thank you enough for spending your morning with us, sharing your story. And we love you. We just wish you continued health, good health, success and only good things. We love you dearly. Thank you so much. I love you so much. Thanks, everyone. Dr. Boca, thanks for joining me today to talk about this. Such an important topic, breast cancer awareness. It is October, the month of breast cancer awareness. Everyone, get out there. Make sure you're protecting yourselves and your loved ones. Talk about it. We don't whisper the C word anymore. We need to scream it loud, proud, and make sure that we are doing right so that we can beat this like Stephanie has. I appreciate all of you from the corner of Audacity and Advice. I'm Rachel Silver Cohen with Dr. Boga, and this has been another episode of Unpolished Therapy. Great sesh, girls. Hey, everyone, like what you heard? Then don't miss out on what comes next. Subscribe now, and please give the girls a five-star rating. Learn more at www.unpolishedtherapy.com. Find and like them on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We'll see you next week when Rachel Silvercone and Dr. Boca ditch the couch, grab the mic, and break down all the wreckage.